Now, that particular piece of inspired uh, pop music, and it's really not pop music, it's Cream and Eric Clapton's cover of Robert Johnson's song, Crossroads. And let's just not use words here. It is fabulous music. And it um, came to me to use this as the prelude to today's podcast, which is 124, entitled Done, because the metaphor of the crossroads, which in the song is not a metaphor, but I'm going to use it as a metaphor, or rather, John Galsworthy uses it as a metaphor in his play from 1915 entitled A Bit of Love. The power of the metaphor in Galsworthy is so inspired and so extruding and so absolutely boom out of nowhere in that remarkable play, and it captures so much of the essence of both of Christianity and of suffering and of hope and of a future and of the possibility of life after death and after the deaths in life that we constantly experience, that um, the inspiration of the line, which is really one of the penultimate lines in that play, immediately brought to mind Crossroads by Clapton and Cream. And I want to talk today a little bit about inspiration, but specifically, what have I learned from Galsworthy? This is the second of two. Uh, and don't, don't dismiss it out of hand. You don't have to give a fig for a particular um, writer who died in 1933. Uh, you don't have to give a fig. I hope you all want to go and read some of this stuff. But really, there's a kind of inspiration here that is verging on something very enduring and also something a little spooky because the inspiration of Galsworthy bespeaks a kind of second sight. You know, I'm using that in the same sense that uh, Eliot did of Kipling. You occasionally read some of these things and you say, where did he get this? And the only answer is he didn't get it from himself because when he wrote about these things, Galsworthy, for example, wrote <coughs> a great deal about what he'd actually written. And very often uh, you have the distinct impression that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts or that something came to him uh, and and was was a really um, – it's like that Gerald Hurd image of the hand go, sort of going above the parapet or the uh, hand coming up from the earth where you're, we're buried in delusion and enough of your hand gets up that the sort of cosmic searchlight, you know, like a like looking for a, one of those searchlights in prison movies where you're escaping and, and you finally get caught in the searchlights. I think there's a Paul McCartney cover album, Band on the Run, you know, that has that uh, image. You're caught in the searchlight of, of the divine mind, and then whoop, you, you, the, 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 the message is transmitted uh, to the um, searchlight, no, to, to the antenna, which is your hand, your writing hand, and your creative uh, hope, and your vulnerability, and your openness. Boop! Sort of the Jack Kerouac moment. Well, Galsworthy had many of these. Uh, when you read him, others uh, great people have also had them, but I'm interested in what he says, because the spiritual or religious dimension is always sort of on the, on the kind of edges of the vibration. <clears throat> and, um, so you have at the end of this uh, remarkable play, A Bit of Love, <clears throat> about the clergyman, Mr. Strangway, you have this sudden coming of an inspiration, and it relates to the word uh, crossroads. I'm giving nothing away because the, that word comes into the um, play 
right at the beginning as well. And uh, then you find the same degree of uh, inspiration at the end of his um, play, The Roof, the last play he was performed that he wrote. I think it was performed in 1929. It's late, Galsworthy. And uh, something happens at the very end. There's a line in it that so strikes one as being kind of a bolt of thunder, lightning, thunder and rain, boom, out of nowhere that relates to a very deep Christian um, um, sort of note of... uh, sacrificial love and it's so explicit that you're sort of completely you're just completely thrown you 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 can't listen to it whether you're a christian or not a non-believer or not but certainly someone who is sympathetic to to the insights of christian love sacrifice and inclusion and uh grace and mercy and absolution you you you, it's like a it's like a, a cannonball hits you and your your head's knocked off you know, like the poor officers in the Civil War. We read about one day, one moment he was in his horse next to his aide-de-camp, and the next moment his head was uh, had been taken clear off by a federal cannonball. Well, it's the same thing. It's absolutely the same thing. And uh, you have this a tremendous amount of inspiration. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, two aspects, actually three, briefly, you really can rest assured. I'm going to try to make this shorter than usual because the last one was, I think, 35 minutes. Ah! The first um, note of inspiration that I wanted to underline that I can't shake, it's something that seems to have come from somewhere else because it's so uncharacteristic of what he believed himself and what he said he believed, is, the, is what you might call the Roman Catholic option. At the very tail end of Galsworthy's work, in two or three places, there occurs a kind of prophetic sixth sense insight that comes out of nowhere because Galsworthy was not a Christian in any practicing sense, uh, and yet he'd grown up in the Church of England. He knew all about it. and It was in his DNA, the Bible and so forth and so on, But and even the message of Christ. But suddenly there appears out of nowhere this kind of signal, I'm here, you know, watch, see the flag over here, um, in which he seems to indicate that the future, in all in fiction, that the future of his characters lies in the Roman Catholic Church. And that is a shock. That is an absolute shock. And it just comes in sort of three or four slightly by-the-by references, but they're important and they're stated uh, in regard to one, uh, his most cherished character around whom he built his final trilogy called um, The End of the Chapter. And uh, that, together with a few other hints he gives in a few other places, he suddenly he sees what is actually happening, that the future of institutional Christianity is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm as well aware of you of the child abuse scandal, and I'm as well aware, I mean, God know, Lord knows, my great friend, uh, that is to say, my filmic uh, adulation hero, Dan Curtis, his last movie was about the um, child abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but... If you look around you, it will be very hard. Take a look around, to quote um, Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66. You'll be very uh, struck by the uh, endurance of the Roman Catholic Church, especially among so-called thinking people. There are an enormous number of people who are looking for something in Christianity visibly that get to the end of the journey and they find themselves desiring to become Roman Catholics. It's a common, it's an age-old pilgrimage, and I see it again and again and again. I see it in my hometown. 
the strongest parish in this hometown, which when my wife was growing up here had 26 churches, of which I think 24 were Baptist or some form of Baptist. And uh, there was no Roman Catholic parish. And that was not very long ago as in the big picture. Now the strongest parish in town by a long shot is the Roman Catholic Church, which is newly built. Um, and uh, for all sorts of reasons. But uh, everywhere I go, I go to the Cathedral of the Angels in Los Angeles, and boy, you know, it's where Gregory Peck is buried, and I'm just undone by the power of the masses there. I'm not tempted to become a Roman Catholic. Don't get the wrong impression. I'm not saying something about the actual, you might say, affirmative... Um, material truth value of um, the Roman Catholic expression of Christianity as over against the Lutheran or the Evangelical or the Protestant Reformed or the Low Church Anglican or whatever. I'm simply speaking empirically that this man, Galsworthy, in 1929 and 1932-33 saw something that almost no one was seeing, but it's so clear now, it, you know, I can't tell you. I So many of my colleagues are unhappy, my former colleagues, that is to say, uh, many, many, many of those who I knew, especially on the traditional wing of my own denomination, have found themselves very unhappy, bitter, resentful in all sorts of circumstances, many of them in places and denominations and formats that they never in a million years would have imagined would be theirs, and yet they are there. And I was reading, uh, by contrast, uh, a, a, an editorial, uh, an interview recently with another one of my colleagues. We're talking about 250 people that I've known over 40 years, quite close, believe it or not, and maybe more, maybe 500, but I think it's probably more like 200. How, how, how many people can you know? But it's probably close to that. And um, there's only one who really seems happy. I know there are others, and I'm sure you're happy if you're listening, and there are others who are happy. But I'm talking about my generation. And one is clearly happy, and it's a man who's become a Roman Catholic uh, priest. And uh, it, it, it's just so extraordinary. When I see pictures of this chap and when I listen to what he says, he's obviously in the stream of his life. He's found his way into the Heraclitean stream of what it is to be. He's found it. He's pre-Socratic. He's found his way into the stream of wholeness and energy and unity in his life, and he's a happy man. <laughs> the picture shows me he's happy because I know him really well. The uh, – did once, Horatio. The, uh, the interview, he's doing God's work for his life in service of love and sacrifice to others and to the church, and it's extraordinary. And I compare it to so many others I know, and I've certainly been there myself in the latter group. Um, and I say to myself, you know, Galsworthy really has a point here. I'm not tempted personally, but I'm struck by his sixth sense in understanding Galsworthy, who himself was barely, a, well, no, he was a pantheist, I guess you could say, a kind of agnostic pantheist. Uh, um, oh, that's just, none of that will do justice to, to that, and certainly doesn't do justice to the inspiration. But there's a second thing in the wider form of it, the bigger picture of Christianity, which is above and beyond its own sacramental incarnational embodiment in the human world, which I feel is a passing thing, no matter what you say, because when we die, it will all fade to nothingness. But the other probably won't. And this is the theme of the greatest of these is love. And there is something you cannot get around, in my opinion, in Christianity, which has to do with sacrificial love, a kind of love, a kind of all-in love unto death, 
that is um, there's something wrapped up in the death of Christ and in something like what you could call the atonement or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. There's something there that kind of, whenever I get close to it, I feel like I'm having one of those buzzers. Remember, the, you, you'd play a trick on a friend. You got these little buzzers and you'd shake his hand or, and then you'd, the buzzer would go, you know, and ah, or a whoopee cushion, but that's not the right analogy at all. I mean, sitting on a tack, you know, well, there's something a little bit strict fatnish, and those of you will know the uh, Kenneth strict fatnish about this. The Bride of Frankenstein. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Uh, there's something about the atonement that you can't get around. And when um, in the play The Roof, it suddenly makes its appearance out of the blue, what used to be called the Johannine blue sky, you say to yourself, and Dylan picks this up. He picks it up in the, that song, Precious Angel. You know, the, they told me about this and they did that, but they never told me about the man who died a criminal's death. You know, you told me about this and that, but you never told me about the man who died a criminal's death. And then you find the same in the first stanza of, uh, of uh, Saved by Dylan, and you find it in um, Saving Grace also by Dylan, and you find it elsewhere. I believe you find it in, um, well, you'll find it in uh, all sorts of more recent songs. Um, oh, Mercy. I think ring them bells. It's in ring them bells. Um, the uh, power of the inspiration connected with the death of Christ. The uh, there is a green hill far away that I still have to say has a kind of uh, given the. Um, things one's done and left undone in life, there's something needful there. There's something needful. You find it a little bit, actually, I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis, but don't misunderstand. I respect him very much. Who cares? But I do like his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it, at the end, there's something about Aslan and the Stone Table that conveys this. There's something about the death of Aslan in relation to Edward that conveys something that is really very important about life and about religion and finally about Christianity that will never die. And it shouldn't, because faith, hope, and love, these three abide. But the greatest of these is love. And uh, love will c continue, you know, beyond the grave. And uh, therefore, it is beyond the church question or the option, the op option, the vorrang. Isn't that the word in Deutsch, off Deutsch? Vorrang uh, für die römisch-katholische uh, the option, which I think is being played out empirically and historically in the world in favor of Roman Catholicism, to that which transcends it at death, which is this kind of particular love which the world needs now because it, it sort of cancels out the empirical fact of your own terrible insufficiencies and sometimes willful ill-doings and malice and selfishness. And I think that's really important. And I get that in... Uh, the roof. And finally, I want to read uh, to you from uh, a section of um, the uh, uh, the novel A Saint's Progress, where I think it's on page 682 and 83 of the American edition. I think it was called Three Novels About Love by Galsworthy. It's 1934-35. It was published right in connection afterwards his death. And uh, there are three novels. I think you can get it. I know you can get it. It's a Scribner's edition of, uh, where is it, Duckworth, London. Anyway, it's A Saint's Progress, and it's on page 682 of that edition. 
It is uh, astonishing because while he's given us a clue about the future of embodied Christianity and while his last play gives us the inescapability of, uh, of sacrificial love in its Christian guise, he then gives us a kind of statement about the meaning of uh, moving from half-baked to done or the partial hopes that we've all had in various ideologies, ideas, arts, uh, various things that we've thought had the whole loaf and life revealed that they weren't quite enough to do it. They weren't quite enough to take us over the river, Uncle, as uh, Denny says towards the end of uh, that wonderful book, Across the River. Uh, you know, I, Uncle, I'm almost there. You know, I want you to get, you are the listener to you, the living. Um, I, I want you to be able to get over. You, 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 you may, if you're listening to this, be aware of how half-baked your solutions are because many forms of religion are, in fact, um, wonderful, but they don't tell the whole story of life, and that's why they tend to collapse in old age. How many older Episcopalians I know who don't go to church? How many clergy I know who want nothing to do with it? How many people I know who went through a religious phase in their adolescence or at some point in their lives when things were troubled, and then it faded because it wasn't quite up to the job. It wasn't the whole enchilada. It was terrific, and it had something inescapably important and irresistibly relevant, but it didn't account for all the data. That's a phrase that I learned from someone once. Does it account for all the data? Well, you have to ask yourself, does this point of view or this help or this bag of tricks, or let's actually call it a medicinal, a doctor's, um, a doctor's bag, does it, does it have all the medicines that are requisite? And often life tells us that it doesn't have everything that's needed. It has a lot, but not everything. And so we have a line when um, uh, Galsworthy uh, suggests really what the nature of the human task is, and I want to read that to you. A Belgian immigrant, actually a refugee from terrible war in uh, Belgium has come to London. He's an artist, a painter, and he is kind of lecturing the main character in Saint's Progress, published in 1919, the Reverend Mr. Edward Pearson. The Reverend Mr. Pearson is a vicar in London. Good man, a very good man, but he's played out. He's exhausted and his life has come apart for all sorts of reasons, and he's really at the end of his rope. And the painter comes to his house to pick up something that he left there and uh, proceeds to see that Mr. Pearson is in a bad way. And Mr. Pearson is terribly reluctant to talk about himself, being A, a Christian of stiff upper lip, and being an Englishman of upper-class sensibilities. The last thing he wants to do is draw attention to himself. And uh, yet his, all his um, sense of duty has failed him in this particular crisis, which is not just self-engendered. It has a lot to do with the character of the church, which is negative in this case. And Monsieur Lavendie speaks to Mr. Pearson as follows. Monsieur, au fond, at base, he says, at root, Monsieur, au fond, we are all concerned with self. To seem selfless is but your particular way of cultivating the perfection of self. You admit that not to obtrude self is the way to perfect yourself. Eh bien, what is that but a deeper concern with self? But, Lavendie added with a sudden smile, you would not wish to forget the perfecting of self. It would not be right in your profession. Well, um, Pearson dismisses him somewhat haughtily and rather shamefacedly, but he cannot shake the last word, because Lavendie has appealed unwittingly to Pearson's actual sense of ministry and vocation when he said this. But, Mr. Pearson, 
You would not wish to forget the perfecting of self. It would not be right in your profession. Well, let me say to you, um, and I say this more to myself than ever, that it would not be right for us in our profession of faith not to remember that the job of living is the perfecting of self. Who are we? I mean, who in the, who are you? Someone I know is constantly asking the question very rightly and perceptively, what is it? What is that? I feel something and I want to know what it is. Or I experience something, a surge of something, and I want to know what that is. And I always um, have so often wanted to say to myself, well, I first want to ask myself, who am I? before I ask, what is this that I'm experiencing? And you know, a lot of us people don't know who we are. What in the world? Who am I? And so the real way to move from half-baked or partially baked or wholesomely, hopefully baked, hopelessly hoping, hopelessly devoted, uh, to be hopeful is to move in a direction towards being done. The pie is done done. Take it out of the oven. It is fully baked and ready to serve. Well, uh, that's um, what I want to present to you. And I only present these three ideas. One was the earthly tilt towards Roman Catholicism, which I regard as an irrepressible, irresistible, historic reality. I'm not saying what I think about it. I'm not declaring myself about it. I'm still very much what I am. And uh, I look at the book I wrote once called The Protestant Face of Anglicanism, and I read it, and there's nothing in it I, I don't like. I mean, I read, you know, you have to, when you read stuff or hear yourself from years ago and you read it, there's nothing in it that I don't think is fundamentally accurate. That's my statement. Uh, a few unfortunate ways of expressing a thing, maybe. <clears throat> but essentially, it seems to me accurate to, to an awful lot of things that one has seen and experienced and read and heard and been. And yet, empirically, the future seems to be with the Catholic Church, and despite all. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Whether I think that's a good thing or not, Galsworthy pre-figured it. And uh, the same in his last play. He saw in a blast of insight that there's something bigger here, and it has to do with this odd fact of this... Um, sacrificial death of, of this one man in this particular format and manner, the all-in character of it. <laughs> and then uh, finally Lavendie sets out the task for unenlightened, half-baked, but very good, very dear, very sincere, and ultimately loving Mr. Pearson. And that uh, stretch uh, happens, or at least begins to happen, and it definitely happens at the crossroads for Michael Strangway, the wonderful and yet broken and deeply ready curate in A Bit of Love. I conclude with um, a piece of music that I really love and that I hope will kind of give you a sense of traveling mercies on the way to being done. Thank you and God bless you. Some place where I've never been before. 